We see these days from one research document to the next that more and more Catholics don't appreciate, understand, or even believe in the Holy Eucharist. So Sam and I, seeing this as a problem that needs to correct or be corrected, have brought on who better than a knight of the Holy Eucharist to talk about his journey as well as the Eucharist. Stay tuned. Welcome to another episode of the Catholic Gentleman Podcast. Uh, we're glad to have you with us. Um, if this is your first time listening, please be sure to subscribe on your podcast player of cho choice, or if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, and uh, also consider uh, possibly supporting us on Patreon and helps make episodes like this possible. Um, but we're happy to have you with us. And, and we're joined today by uh, a modern day knight, uh, a Knight of the Holy Eucharist, uh, Brother Angelo Marie Dobbins. And uh, Brother Angelo uh, was born in a Catholic family in Florida. Uh, and they moved uh, when he was young to Georgia. Uh, and, um, and towards the end of high school, he discerned religious life and ended up joining uh, the Knights of the Holy Eucharist, a Franciscan order founded by Mother Angelica of EWTN fame. Uh, and that religious order now resides in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, so, Brother Angelo, we're so happy to have you with us. Peace be with you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so as John mentioned in, in kind of the teaser, like faith in the Holy Eucharist is waning um, and more and more uh, doubt is being cast on the teachings of the church in general, but especially uh this idea of the Holy Eucharist being the body and blood, soul, and divinity uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even a lot of Catholics who say that they're faithful Catholics still struggle with this belief. Um, and we want to talk about that in a minute. But first, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your story and your journey to religious life and perhaps maybe even how you discerned uh, the religious order you chose? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so I've been a religious for the past seven years, and I actually just took my final vows yesterday. Uh -huh, uh, praise God. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as you were saying, yeah, I grew up in a Catholic family uh, down in Florida. So I, I always had a love for going to church. I just, I, I loved the mass, even, even as a young kid. Uh, but of course, you know, you go your your way and you fall into sin and you keep going in. So my first inkling that maybe I would want to be a priest was around age 10. Uh, and then I wanted to be anything else but a priest for several years. So about midway through high school, I wanted to become an artist. I actually wanted to become an animator. Uh, because a lot of the stories I was watching on television, I, I loved animation and I loved storytelling in that font. So uh, I even studied for a few semesters at some art colleges, a uh, few seminars, actually. And so I thought, you know, I could balance my life by just keeping God on the weekends. And in a way, I was only giving him half my heart. And at the time, I was also, you know, struggling with sin like many men these do. Well, we all do, you know. Uh, and I was sort of just living my life half-heartedly for God and God wanted more of my, he wanted more of my heart, I suppose. So, uh, I was pretty active in my youth group even then, uh, even though I was more or less living a double life and for whatever reason in the summer of 2014, my youth group wanted to go on a whitewater rafting trip on the Okoe River, uh, which is where the 96 Olympics were held in Atlanta. Mm. And I had never gone whitewater rafting before. Uh, so I figured I'd try something new. So the river is very dangerous. Actually, when I had gone, two girls died on that river whitewater rafting. So it's a, it's a rather dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Uh, 
So I was on the front left side of the raft and it had rained that morning and uh, they let loose the dam a bit. So the rapids were actually stronger. So on the very first rapids, I was kicked out of the boat and the boat ran me over. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember hitting my head underneath the raft and was thinking that this could be it. Uh, and I was stuck under the raft for quite some time. And even after the raft finally passed me by, I uh, was still stuck underneath the water. And I was just wanting more and more air. I finally broke through the waves. And the first thing I did was inhale uh, as much air as I could, but alongside that, I inhaled water as well. And they took two times to try and throw a rope to me to get me into another raft, just because the rapids were so strong. And the first time it literally ripped the rope out of my hands. So I went through the rest of the run fine, just a little bit shaken, but something <laughs> happened. Yeah. 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 Just a wee bit so. shaken. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So something started to happen. I had gotten a case of inflamed lungs, which is a very bad upper respiratory infection afterwards because of the water I inhaled. Um, And in a way I was, I was sort of going through a shock period for several months. Uh, I would have trouble breathing. I would start having heart palpitations and even anxiety attacks uh, for a series of months going forward. And it seemed like it wasn't letting up. It was really vicious attacks. And uh, even looking back on it now, uh, I was seeing how the devil was sort of ploying on that and even trying to get me to uh, struggle with God in a way which uh, wasn't healthy. And so it would be especially bad at night. I wouldn't be breathing properly. So I would wake up in the middle of the night, take a huge breath in, my heart would start going, I would start going into a panic mode. And when I was in that kind of state, uh, my response was to get my rosary uh, and go onto the back porch of the cabin I was living at in North Georgia and pray. Uh, I would walk the floorboards of the porch. Uh, I would occasionally kneel down and put my head to the floor just to get the gunk out of my lungs because of the infection. And in the middle of a decade, I forget which one, after uh, an attack, an anxiety attack, I heard a voice shoot through my head and it said one word, priesthood. (laughs) And my head shot immediately straight up. And I, I realized in that moment that this was a time that God was trying to talk to me. And so I said, all right, Lord, if you want me to become a priest, show me the way. And this is where I really say I discern my vocation. You know, people can have locution-like moments and then do the exact opposite of what God is asking you to do. Just like, just like Jonah, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. So in Listening to myself tell the story right now, it, it almost sounds like I'm trying to build myself as if I'm a saint right now. I'm really not. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but yeah, but um, so I would start going to Eucharistic adoration a lot and start going to confession once a week to help me to get over my sins at the time uh, and even uh, go to mass as often as I could. So really what helped me to discern my vocation was starting to live a deep sacramental life, especially revolved around the Eucharist. Uh, And the effect of my doing that as a habit was that I was falling deeper and deeper in love with God. Mm. Uh, So word had gotten around my parish up in North Georgia that I was discerning into the priesthood, but those in the inner circle uh, who were helping me, like the pastor and the deacon of the parish, knew I was really discerning into religious life uh, because I didn't see myself called to the diocesan life. Uh, For me, and this is just me, I knew that if I was going to meet the universal call to holiness, I would need brothers to help me alongside the way. 
And I had, uh, the name of the parish was St. Francis of Assisi uh, in Blairsville, Georgia. And so I had heard of the Franciscans and even some of uh, the members of the uh, pastorship were uh, third order secular Franciscans. And so I had a bend in the Franciscan way and uh, the deacon wanted to take me to two different monasteries. One in Conyers, Georgia, uh, which I believe is dedicated to the Holy Spirit, mm. uh, and their Cistercians, I believe. Uh, no, Trappist. And the Knights of the Holy Eucharist, who were at the time in Hansville, Alabama, at the second uh, monastery uh, that Mother Angelica founded, the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament, which is where the PCPA nuns are now and where Mother Angelica is currently buried in the crypt church. And that's where uh, I started. You know, I spent a few days in the Lent of 2015 there. And for whatever reason, I can't remember why I went back. Uh, I spent my senior spring break two weeks doing manual labor, which I didn't want to do, spending two hours of adoration a day, uh, getting up in the morning very early, going to bed very late at night. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I was starting to feel this sense of peace that I discerned was the Holy Spirit's indication uh, that this is where I was meant to be. No, I appreciate that very much. Um, I do. I want to take a step back and ask you just a little bit of um, you You show a degree of spiritual maturity at a young age, I would say, you know, the idea of of going to the rosary when you're when you're feeling down and sick. Um, I mean, I remember trying to pray the rosary when I was in college and um and I knew how to pray the rosary, but I didn't really understand the efficacy or the merit or the, you know, the value of it. But I just kind of white knuckled it anyways. And then, you know, the idea of going to adoration, like for me, these things were all um, recommended from from the periphery, not necessarily somebody directly guiding me. So who would you attribute your um your growth was it a father figure was it a father was it your family did they pray the rosary were they able to to help guide you because i think a lot of our listeners um understand living that duplicitous life where where we're yeah. you know we're you might be experiencing that shame and that struggle, but we're also doing it kind of, um, you know, uh, secluded and, um, you know, but at the same time, I, I just kind of want to delve a little bit deeper into your, your spiritual growth and, and where you would yeah. attribute that, um, maturity yeah. to, you know, to be honest, it, it, it was grace. And I believe that, um, it was especially Mary who helped me out. Mm -hmm. You know, every man needs a woman in his life, even a celibate man. Uh, and St. Joseph, alongside the way, I could see even him helping alongside the way. I have a particular devotion uh, to Mary and Joseph. I've uh, been consecrated to them both. Uh, and, you know, Every single person has a vocation to holiness that God preordained to each one of us. Mm. And just by that merit alone, grace is there for us. One thing that I was especially struggling with in, in high school was isolationism. And I think a lot of people do that. And the source of the isolationism was actually the Internet. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn how to fight against that isolationism and actually start to communion with God. Uh, I actually had to fight against the urge to isolate myself by overusing the Internet, because it's a good thing if you use it in proper moderation. But the more you use the Internet and just go and go and go like it's an addiction because it can become the less time you have to spend paying attention to God. And so, to be honest, looking back, I'm sure my guardian angel certainly helped, 
because they're always here trying to help us along the way of grace. And to be honest, in every second that we live, a new grace is given to us. We just have to pray for the grace to receive the grace. And you'd be surprised just saying, Lord, I'm open to what you want me to do. Give me the grace to do it. Mm-hmm. You will be surprised what will happen. And you even see yourself going along the way of the spiritual life, maybe at at an even faster rate than you thought you would maybe a week, a month ago, even a year ago. I've known men who have spent years and years and years just focusing on their work, just focusing on the work. And there's good in that. And it's necessary because work helps us to become the men we're meant to be. But I also have known men who have worked And then all of a sudden, when they're like 45 or something, God gives them a particular grace. And that grace is come and be with me deeper. And for some people, it comes at certain points of their lives. For others, it comes younger. It all depends on what God is calling you and your vocation of holiness. Yeah, it's beautiful. So you just felt felt that um, drive to cooperate with the grace that god was making available to you and he did the rest essentially um it sounds like and and i love this 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 idea of like devotion to mary and joseph and especially i know you know i've talked about before just kind of uh how devotion to blessed mother has has um, been really life-changing for me as well i remember coming into the church one of the first things i was struggling with was uh the the catholic teachings on mary Mm -hmm. and i remember like saying okay if i'm gonna understand this i want to really understand this like i don't want to just kind of like nod my head that this is this is true like i really want to immerse myself in it and reading saint louis de montfort's you know true devotion mary was just so so mind-blowing to me um so i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that marian devotion and how that's played a role in your your religious vocation, but also just your spiritual development as well. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a Franciscan, certainly. And some of the greatest modern Franciscan saints have had tremendous devotion to Mary, St. Maximilian Kolbe, especially. Now, uh, I'm also a Knight of the Holy Eucharist, which is our formal title, but we are Franciscans. You know, we have, uh, even in the sort of cliche poetic idea of a knight there's the lady yeah you know there's a lady and so especially for a knight mary has a particular place in our spiritual life as our lady and so there's two essential things mary is to every christian she's our mother and she became our mother on the cross, at the cross of Christ. And she's also our queen. She's the queen of all Christians. And so those two essential factors of her, of the nature of her vocation to us, it, there's a particular purpose Mary has in our lives. Uh, there's no other saint that is like her because of the particular grace that she had first to be immaculately conceived, saved by the merits of Christ on the cross over time, to be born pure of all sin, and then to be able to bear God physically in the person of Jesus Christ. There will be no other woman who has ever done what Mary has done, and there will be no other woman in heaven who has as high a place as Mary does to us. And Mary, as our mother, loves us each individually and knows exactly what we need. Because not only is she our mother and queen, she's also the route which Christ takes in order to give us grace. You know? And so Mary isn't for the faint-hearted. Mary is the route for us to get to Jesus. 
Um, she's like the ground underneath our feet in order so that we may have a place to meet Christ, you know? And so when it comes to devotion to Mary, not only do we find our position to fight the Christian life, but also our weaponry. Uh, and that especially came through the Holy Rosary. Um, and it's through the Holy Rosary that we can actually overcome the crises, the crises that we have in the church today and even in the world at large. Uh, so devotion to Mary is not optional for any Catholic. If we, I believe, I forget who said it, and I'm sure that I'll remember later. And it's a very hard quote, and not everybody will understand it. But a saint once said, he who has not Mary for his mother has not God for his father. And so Mary is, is necessary for our relationship with Christ because Christ came to us through her. And so we have to go to Christ through Mary because she is our route, our holy route to God. Amen. <laughs> we're, we're all in agreement. Uh, Sam and I uh, had quite a few episodes on consecration and we're very grateful. So I appreciate you sharing that because it's, it can't be overstated and it's something that men yeah. need to hear more and more, especially, and I think as what you were saying, I like that connection to the night to the lady um, and things like that, because there's often this feeling of like, if I get into this devotion with Mary, yeah, there's like, um, somehow I'm less, less of a man because I'm, I'm going to a woman, but, but as you've so beautifully stated her strength, her might, her, um, her beauty and her motherliness that, that we all are in so desperate need of, as well as the church's teachings and the fact that, you know, her as mediatrix of all grace and stuff that we, we yeah. turn to, uh, so well stated. So I really appreciate that. So I'd love to, yeah, yeah please. You were going to say, well, uh, I just one last thought on Mary, you know, excellent. St. Joseph has this particular title, uh, which is terror of demons. And so maybe there would be some Catholic men who, uh, who think that devotion to Mary is sort of girly, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it sounds a little weird, but actually Mary has a title, which is also terror of demons. And she shares that title with St. Joseph. Uh, so if anybody would think that devotion to Mary is, is, is sort of feminine, just be reminded that one, she makes all of hell tremble and not very many women can do that. So Amen. there's a certain, there's certain power with Mary, which complements masculinity perfectly. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we talk about Our Lady of Sorrows as, you know, oh, yeah. um, the deliverance prayers and the need for protection, you know, when binding spirits and, and her ultimate uh, control and um, and protection in that. So, yeah, no, we're on the same page. I want to take a moment right. and I want to talk about the cool name and, and your order a little bit. So the Knights of the Holy Eucharist, right? So that, mm -hmm. that is a, that's a really great name, right? It's not in, and that's nothing against Trappist or Cistercians, but it's a very masculine yeah. name, you know, this idea yeah. of, of you are a knight and you are a knight in protection and in defense and in um, even, even battle or champion of the Holy Eucharist. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about uh, the order and, and where that name came to be, or, you know, yeah. yeah. What was, yeah. The, the ultimate cause yeah actually the name first came to mother angelica because of a vision she had of saint michael mm -hmm. um many people know of mother angelica but uh not many people know she was a mystic mm -hmm. um and there was a time where uh saint michael himself appeared to her and uh, strangely called her a knight of the Holy Eucharist. And so when the shrine in Alabama was being erected, she discerned that there was going to be a need uh, for 
someone to greet the many pilgrims who still come to that shrine every year. And so our original vocation was to greet pilgrims uh, and show hospitality to priests and religious um, in order to be Christ to them. And so recently our, our community vocation changed because we're no longer at the shrine anymore. And so we're into a new step rather recently because we moved in 2016, we're into a new step of our identity, you know? Um, I'm sure that you all have talked about spiritual warfare before. A knight was actually consecrated to the war for the church. And today, that war is still going on because really in reality, there's only one true war, the war for souls. And uh, there's something that's exciting about a fight. You know, there's something that makes the heart race about it. And a lot of people like to see a good fight, you know, even with something as simple as a chess match, uh, a boxing match. I'm a big fan of Rocky, actually. I can actually relate to Rocky a whole lot. So there's something about a fight which is both dissuading and attractive at the same time because it's a test of virtue. And the whole Christian life is a fight. It's a war. We have our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, he, and sometimes the greatest enemy we have is ourselves. And so there's a particular need to step up the fight in the wider church now. You were talking about all the trouble with the Eucharist. I'm sure we'll talk about that very soon. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, we need to wake up the church in a way so that we can reclaim the idea that Christianity isn't a club. Christianity is actually a way of life, which is very much so ascetic, emptying, and putting on Christ. And so when it comes to a night, the idea of a fight goes hand in hand with that. Uh, I, in my own experience, have uh, fought to degrees with the, uh, with the devil. And I've obviously also fought against my own sin, sinful inclinations. And just by the very fact that uh, I wear the habit that I wear uh, I've basically made myself an enemy of the world, mm. just as any Christian man has. So uh, there's something about being a Catholic in particular, uh, which has a kind of radicality to it. It has a way which is going so against the world uh, that you make yourself an enemy of many and a great friend of few. Mm. Uh and that just comes along with the fight. And the reason why the Christian life is a fight is because heaven actually likes a fight too. Um, you know, Christ himself fought, oddly enough, upon the cross. And so the way that we fight is also with the cross, which is why Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. And so the identity of the night has everything to do with picking up our crosses and following Christ. Hence why when you become a final professed brother, you get a crucifix. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's seated right at the center of your person because when people look at you, you would be able to tell them without even saying a word that Christ is my center. He's the one I fight for. Uh, and there's uh, two objectives to fight for your own salvation and the salvation of others, no matter whether they're Catholic or Christian or not. Uh, and that's what the Knight of the Holy Eucharist dedicates his life to. Mm. 
That's that's really beautiful. I love too the idea of of you know having a certain like the the idea of a knight having a certain strength, but that it's put at the service uh, of others or, or dedicating that. And you know, we all know of like you know these these celebrity like you mentioned boxing, like these celebrity boxers yeah, who yeah. just get on social media and just show off all their wealth and and they have a certain degree of power, but it's all about them, you know. At the end of the day. Yeah. But then we think yeah. of, you know, some of like, you know, like our military or, or you know, different situations like that, where it's they, they're very powerful people, but they're putting it at the service and the good of others. And there's there's just something attractive about that, you know, and there's yeah. this beautiful painting of uh, I can't remember who painted it, but of this knight kneeling before an altar, you know, and like holding his sword up like he was giving his strength and service to God and the church and to defend the weak and, and the vulnerable. and and so I love that, but, but I also want to, there's another aspect of the title of your order that I want to focus on. And that's this idea of the Holy Eucharist. And, yeah. and again, this is like a stumbling block for a lot of people. Um, this idea that this is the body and blood of Christ. It's not, you know, a metaphor. It's not something to help us you know, just think of Jesus and what he did for us or, you know, just, you know, I grew up in Protestant churches and I remember, you know, them passing around a little tray of, of grape juice and, and yeah. saltine crackers. Uh, and then I even went to one church and they had them prepackaged in like little snack, snack packages, you know, it was just, it was just so trivial um, and then you come to a Catholic church and people are genuflecting and then kneeling and like in this thing called adoration. And it's just, it, it's all seems kind of from an outsider's perspective over the top and, and, yeah. and yet, but Catholics take it seriously. So tell us a little bit about your experience with the Holy Eucharist and, yeah, you know, your, what really led you to that point of faith that this is the body and blood of Christ, uh, without doubt. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, I'd actually like to say something that I would probably be fought on uh, uh, from some other perspectives. I'll begin with two things. One, people have died for their faith in the true teaching on the Eucharist. St. Tarsisius uh, is one example. He was a Roman boy uh, back when the Roman Empire was still around, and he was taking the Holy Eucharist to some sick people. And some pagan boys actually killed him on the street because they wouldn't hand over the Eucharist to them. And he died in the arms of a Roman soldier. And when they, they had to take him back to the bishop, and it was by word of mouth that the bishop said to Tarsisius' corpse, open your hands. And it was only then that the boy's hands opened up and the Eucharist was gone. And tradition says that he became like Christ so much that the Eucharist entered into himself because he imitated Christ in such a perfect way by martyrdom. And he's just one example. And the more radical thing that I'm going to say is that for the past 2000 years, the church's teaching on the Eucharist has stayed the same. If you look at the early writings of the fathers, they all are in agreement that there's a kind of literal, literal uh, a to this sacrament. It was only for about 500 years now that people really started to doubt. And the point is, if the church was wrong from the very beginning, especially on this most key doctrine, then what else could be put into question? Basically, what I'm saying is if the Catholic Church is wrong, there's no Christian denomination, which is true. Because the Catholic Church is the very heart of Christianity. And so there's really only one church. For me personally, the Eucharist is my life. 
And he is everything to me. Because I fell in love with love. And I don't see a reason why love wouldn't come down to us and physically be with us. Even when he said, I will be with you to the end of the age. If the Eucharist is just symbolic in a way where he's not really there or like he's present with the bread, uh, like consubstantiation, that would be less than what we would have in the Old Testament in a way. It would, Christ would then be effectively giving us less because he's not giving us himself in a sacramental way. And so it's like an all-in bet. You, you, you can't say this or that. It has to be yes or no. And for me, if I am wrong about the Holy Eucharist, then I'm dedicating myself to a lie, and every Catholic would be. And so the stakes are high. And only one answer is sufficient for the whole of the truth. And we can't be on the fence about it. And that's the mission of the Knights of the Holy Eucharist is to wake up, not just the Catholic Church, but all people to this, yes, metaphysical reality, yes, this reality of faith, but also this physical and literal reality that God is tabernacling among us, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the hands of the priests. And that's why Catholic Christianity in particular is truly radical, because there cannot be a single aspect of it that can be false because it's either a divinely instituted organization or it's not. And the 2000 years of history of Eucharistic miracles, of various miracles, even with Our Lady, with the saints, you can't sweep that under the rug, no matter how hard you try. And so I would invite any listener to simply go before the Eucharist as a child, because it's only those who have childlike hearts who will be able to understand this great mystery. I, I, I would end by saying perhaps the heart of the reason why so why we're having a crisis, and I want to talk about the word crisis in a way, the reason that we're having this crisis of belief is because in a way we become proud. We become proud enough to doubt Jesus. And it's only by allowing ourselves to be humble and submissive to his word alone that we'll be able to turn the tides and bring the church back to where it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, well stated. Uh, I, I'm very grateful for, for your whole comments on that, your conviction behind this. What's more masculine, right, than uh, than believing and in living your belief and being able to speak so clearly on it as you did. So I just want to thank you for that and for your witness. I want to kind of ask you, as you so well stated, that the Knights of the Holy Eucharist are really working to change the tide of this this unbelief and i know it's very multifactored as to why i mean from um historical claims to protestant claims to claims of science and things like that but what would you what would you say to a man um in addition to what you already have but that maybe more practically in guidance who who is in the church who is um, struggling with the belief in the Eucharist or has already just kind of gone through the motions, but um, never, never truly committed or believed it. How would they reach what you have? And, and try and say that a different way, like it really comes very clearly that, that you are 
you know, defending, you'd be willing to die for this um, belief, for this truth. Um, but so many people drowned out by the noise of the world. You mentioned earlier, you know, the internet and how that can overwhelm us. And I, I was reading recently Screwtape talking to Wormwood and yeah. how he said, you know, it was silence and music are the two things that, that praise God, or not, he wouldn't say praise God, but <laughs> silence and music, thanks, um, you know, to Satan for never allowing those things here and and hell because you know there there's in so opposition to to what we would like to um uh, achieve within men in creating this overwhelming noise so men today have been distracted they've been um you know attacked and uh people are always vying for their attention so how do they get what you have and i know we've talked about this briefly in, in show prep and i'd like to hear from you yeah. how would you guide men yeah. kind of in that camp yeah, well, one, uh, it's in the context of a crisis. And actually, I would like to, I, I read a Catholic writer on this, and he, he actually talked about the Japanese word for crisis. It's actually mm. a conglomeration of the words of trouble and opportunity. So, yes, we're in troubling times, but as a crisis properly says, it actually leads to a hope, a hope for opportunity. And uh, I actually want to, we're talking about all the noise and stuff, but also sometimes pop culture can help us give us great references. Uh, there was a really, really good Spider-Man movie that came out recently, uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, and, you know, you you follow Miles Morale, who's this 14-year-old uh, kid uh, who, you know, gets bitten by the spider uh, and Peter Parker from another dimension. Who knows? It gets complicated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, comes to help them. Comes to help them. But the thing is, the whole process of which Miles Morrell had to go through was under the context of a leap of faith. And actually, Peter Parker explicitly said that. Uh, and so faith is a lot like trying to find who you are just like Miles Morale was trying to do. He was trying to find who he was because he was put into the situation where he could either sink or swim. And uh, Peter Parker was talking about how it's just a leap of faith, you know? Uh, and that leap of faith has to be built on a trust, you know? Uh, for Miles, his leap of faith had to be with the idea that I can do it. You know, he was struggling so much with the, these powers he had just received that he didn't even want. Uh, and he was put into this situation and now he has these big shoes to fill. But for our situation, our leap of faith, it's based on Christ. And Christ's person. Uh, I believe it was... Uh, an analogy that Bishop Barron once said about an umpire, uh, and I think it was about the magisterium of the church, but it also applies to Christ, how Christ, if Christ is God, he would be able to do the things of God, and the entirety of the gospel shows that. And so when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, it either is or is not his body and his blood. And so it really boils down to the question of whether or not you trust Jesus at his word. And that is the leap of faith. And that can be very difficult to get to. And I'm, it's not, it's not like you're going to snap your fingers and then you're going to be like, Oh yeah, I, I absolutely believe this 100%. Sometimes that does happen because grace would allow that, but we have to go back to the idea of a fight. You know, Miles Morale had to fight to the position he was able to get to, but for us, our shoes that we had to fill is to be like Christ. And that means following him in the way that he's asked us to follow him, both in practice and in belief. And so it has to do with a jumping off of a building effect, just like Miles Morrell had to do. You have to be able to find the courage to believe in Christ, uh, especially through the tradition, which was passed down from the very first apostles down today. 
because it hasn't changed. And so basically the answer boils down to, are you willing to jump? Because Christ is going to be there with you. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Just, just taking that, taking that first step, you know, it's interesting to note in the gospels, whenever Jesus uh, encountered someone, he would often ask something of them to kind of test their seriousness, if you will, test their degree of faith. And, and, um, you know, he could have healed them without doing that, but a lot of times he would, he would, uh, you know, say, you know, give them some, um, uh, some test. And so I think that it's in the modern world too, there's so many forces working against us. Yeah. Trying to erode that belief. And really what is, the church is bearing witness to like a different order of being, you know, the world wants us to believe that this is all there is get rich yeah. or die trying, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. get all the latest and greatest gadgets and, and upgrade to this and, and Im- improve this. And, and it's all about this material world and, and, and improving your situation in that. And yet here's the church uh, with, you know, thousands of priests and religious orders and, and there's this, you know, thing called the mass that's, that's very strange to the world. And like, again, adoration, like how radically countercultural to sit silently for an hour. Uh, yeah. it, it, it just, it just makes no sense to the world. It's like so radical. And, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, how as men were called to be in conflict with the world, not in a, you know, a hostile or, or bitter way, but in a, a loving way to, to bear yeah. witness to a different order. And so I'm wondering, like, just in you, for you personally, there might be someone watching this who's thinking, wow, he's so young, you know, and he, uh, he's been in this religious order for seven years already. And, and uh, yet he just, you know, made these final vows and like, man, what a life of sacrifice. And, and so I, I just would, would really love to hear honestly, like what your, what your, experience has been has it been worth it has it been you know this completely countercultural life that you're living that makes zero sense to the world like why would you be a knight of the holy eucharist you know and yet you're doing it and there's a certain joy that you exude and so i would just love to hear like what has it been like for you and and uh, you know is this is this way of life something real and, and worthwhile oh yeah it is but it's only for those who are called You know, uh, a lot of people are very worried about, for instance, and I I will certainly get to your question, but I want to do it in this roundabout way, the crisis of the priesthood. Yeah. A lot of people are very worried about the crisis of the priesthood. Um, And people are wondering, where are all our vocations? The fact of the matter is they're here. They're, They're here. There is no crisis of lack of priests, there's crisis and lack of conviction. And there are many who are called, say, to religious life or to the priesthood, Uh, especially most of the church, as it's always been, most has been called to marriage life. But for me and my experience, I would be happy nowhere else. You know, I, I can certainly say from experience that the religious life has its difficulties, not necessarily only in chastity or, you know, sexual desire, because celibacy in its own sake, a proper celibate person is sexually fulfilled in a different way. Uh, but people always get hung up on that just because of how sexualized our culture is, but there's even greater battles. For instance, the battle of your will versus your superiors. Um, And actually many older religious will say that the greater battle is actually letting your will die and your superiors will reside over you. Um, Yeah, that would certainly seem difficult and it is. Um, But The religious, his first act is to lose himself. His first act is to 
let his own will die so that Christ's will can live in him. And with that comes an ironic sweetness, an ironic joy that in the eyes of the world, you're losing all. But in the eyes of eternity, you're gaining everything. Um, I, you know, I wanted to be an animator. I wanted to be a storyteller. I, I wanted to do all a bunch of different things, actually a martial arts instructor, a boxer, things like that. And I look back on it now and I've said, if I went the route of say an animator or a, just a novelist, uh, and I still write just in different contexts. Now, if I were to pursue any other career and the religious life isn't a career, if I were to pursue any regular job, I would be miserable because that's not what I'm called to. Jesus teaches that the only way we can find fulfillment is by doing the father's will. And for me, this is my vocation. The only way one can find peace is to follow the Father's will. Uh, and I think our, the reason that so many people are despairing these days is because they've glorified themselves in an unholy manner by allowing themselves to fall into sin alone and thinking that they'll still be happy. Uh, sin the effect of sin is is death and it even has even other effects such as you know living in a way which is unnatural to our state because the human person as uh someone who's meant for eternity can only be fulfilled by living their life uh as if they were already living in eternity. And that's what we've lost a whole lot, is the idea that we've, we're already living an eternal life. Uh, and so it, it goes back to that leap of, of faith. It goes back to that leap of faith that we're called by our nature to find God and to trust in him because we're meant to be in a relationship with God as we are. And that doesn't mean that we stop becoming who we are and become someone else. In fact, the way of the same for each of us and each of our vocations is that we find who we are as we are. Uh, I came across this wonderful Latin phrase. It was uh, opere agire esse, uh, which is basically to be and then to do. And we need to refine our, as St. Peter says, our living, our being, everything back to Christ. We need to reorient ourselves to Christ. And so in finality, I would say that in order for one to find his vocation and to be happy, one has to trust Christ and go at it. For my particular vocation, I'm called to be a religious and possibly a priest along the way. Uh, for many, it's to find their spouse and to seek heaven alongside her or him, uh, depending if you're a woman. Um, and for the priest, it's to become like Christ in a very particular sacramental way and to serve the people of God. Uh, the Christian life is a great adventure, and we should never forget that. And we should never doubt God when he has our best interests in mind by asking us to do his will, uh, because it's that great adventure. It's that great adventure of going into the unknown, of taking that leap of faith, of being able to fall in love, to stay in love, uh, and to have love dictate everything we do. Not love as the world puts it, but love as Christ puts it, and that will always redound to this. It will always redound to this. 
Yeah, absolutely. Nah, that's so great. Well, as we're coming here at the end of our episode, I want to hear any uh, practical advice that you would give men to uh, pursue on a daily basis. You know, I know you mentioned in our correspondences, you know, masculine saints or, you know, prayer and things like that. I'd love to, we'd love to hear parting words from you, uh, encouraging men to, to move forward after they've heard this episode to help grow in that, that rich, you know, um, faith and that rich, uh, you know, holiness that God has um, designed them to be. And I'd love to hear that from you. Three things. Yeah. We'll end with three things on my part. Yeah. One, uh, the rosary is by far uh, the most important thing that needs to happen in your life. I took on the mantle recently of uh, being one of the guys who will have conversations with men discerning it. Um, And so it's possible, you know, uh, if one of the folk uh, listening to this podcast and is discerning religious life, if you call into us, uh, he'd probably get me and we'd probably end up having a conversation about uh, your possible vocation to religious life. The rosary uh, is Mary's way of being with us. You know, it's a sacramental, but it's one of the most powerful sacramentals because it's so Christ-centered. Every single aspect of the rosary is Christ-centered. And there's particular graces which can only come to us through the rosary. Uh, One of the promises of the rosary is that anything of course, within the will of God that is asked of the one praying the rosary will be heard by Mary and petition to God from her. And so if you want to find your Catholic identity, both in your vocation, but also uh, just who you are as a Catholic, find it in the rosary. The second thing, seek and strive with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, to be with the Holy Eucharist, no matter what, and to show your love by going to Eucharistic adoration, uh, by receiving our blessed Lord at Mass uh, with as clear a soul as you can, especially in the clearing it with the sacrament of confession, And to start living the sacramental life and to start living a deeper life of prayer, because the life of prayer sums up everything about the spiritual life. We're meant to commune with God and prayer is our communication with God and praying the rosary and just being before our Lord in the blessed sacrament taught me to pray even on deeper levels. And the third thing, the reality of the angels. Uh, We recently passed by the Feast of the Holy Angels, which is my feast day, my namesake. Um, Realize that you're never alone. Even when you're sinning, you're not alone. We have friends whom God gave us who are conduits of grace themselves to us. Uh, Even the lessest angel in heaven is greater than the greatest man uh, by nature. And every single one of us has a guardian angel. And that's a fact of our faith, a fact of necessary belief that there's a whole other realm beyond the material, because a lot of the issues we have is because of the philosophy of materialism, a whole nother aspect of creation, which is spiritual in nature. And God gave us our own angels to help us along the way. And when we finally reach our judgment at the end of our lives, it will be our angel uh, who will either be one of the ones accusing us Uh, or one of the ones who are most helping us. And it depends on how much we've listened to him. Uh, So one, pray the rosary. Two, 
seek a sacramental life, especially revolved around our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. And three, develop a relationship with your guardian angel, because I guarantee you, he will advise you uh, to your particular needs, uh, to what you need to do in order to become holy, not only in your active vocation, but just in your practices. Uh, because their primary function is to help us along the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love to grow in that. And just as John Paul II said famously, be not afraid. Uh, be not afraid. Be not afraid. Advice that's not just abstract for you, but that you are bearing witness to with your life. And so thank you for for your vocation and for your service to the church. Um, and it, it was really a joy to talk to you and, and to uh, uh, hear your wisdom. So, Well, thank you very much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I second that. I really appreciate that very much. It was great hearing you. And uh, yeah, there was a depth of wisdom. I don't think either of us were prepared for. So, you know, I really appreciate that. I appreciate, I appreciate that. Deo gracias. Deo gracias. Amen. So as we like to end each of our episodes. Be a man, be a saint.